Hello and welcome to Travels Free Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. Today's destination is 14th century Italy. There, amid a deadly plague and political factionalism, a few sparkling characters, Petrarch and Boccaccio, gave life to a new intellectual movement that would develop into what we today call humanism. Our guest today is Sarah Bakewell, the best-selling and prize-winning author of books like How to Live on the French writer Montaigne, and more recently at the existentialist cafe, Freedom Being and Apricot Cocktails, which was one of the New York Times' top 10 books of 2016. She's won the Duff Cooper Prize, the Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize, and she's now back with a new book. It's called Humanly Possible, 700 Years of Humanist Free Thinking, Inquiry and Hope. I spoke to Sarah just the other day. For more as ever about this episode, do head to our website at tttpodcast.com. I should begin by saying hello, Sarah Bakewell. Welcome to Travels Free Time. Thanks very much. Readers last spotted you sauntering in the cafes of left bank Paris, watching the existentialists like Sartre and Beauvoir. We're going to be looking at figures from a very different historical period today, a time when there were certainly no apricot cocktails available for consumption as we go back to the humanist, um, to look at the beginning of the humanist tradition, which is 700 years ago. But first of all, asking you the slippery question which you pose at the beginning of your new book, Humanly Possible, what is humanism? Yeah, it's about the most difficult question in some ways to answer, um, <laughs> but it's there are lots of different forms of humanism is one one answer to that. But in the book, I try and look for connections between them and to see how the different kinds of humanism have have informed one another or how they've responded to one another or what they have in common. And the one that we're probably going to be talking about quite a bit later on is um, the origin of our word, the humanities. So it's humanism in the sense of um, studying what they used to call the human studies. So those are literature, history, culture, the arts, all sorts of that kind of general area that we still call the humanities. And that really exploded in the 14th century, although it's traditionally thought of as starting in the 14th century. It has, of course, a longer history than that. And they were drawing on the classical world. So we'll come on to more about that later. But there's this long tradition of also kind of moral study of the past, a moral philosophy that's connected with the literature of the past and studying history and how people have um, responded to cultural heritage in the past and all that sort of thing. Those are called humanists today, especially in America, where the usage is a bit more common, I think. Those who specialize in the humanities are still called humanists. But there's a usage that's also very familiar in the English-speaking world, which is people who prefer to, um, rather than looking to religions and particularly religious doctrines or authorities for moral guidance or as the source of meaning in their lives, they prefer to look to our relationships with other people and the way of belonging in human communities and also community with the natural world, with the rest of the planet. So it's a, it's a sense of morality and meaning based on this life and a secular, usually, sense of what reality is. So not relying on anything supernatural. And then there's a kind of more general philosophical meaning, which is to do with putting human beings first, human individuals. And it's often you see that applied in things like a humanist architecture or a humanist city planning is one that looks primarily to how people are going to live in that city or in that building, how it's going to suit their well-being and, and be a good place to live in for people rather than, say, looking for some incredibly exciting design that is actually impossible to live in. You know, it's a, it, so more generally, it's kind of human centered vision in the sense of individuals rather than ideologies or scriptures or authorities. Mm. 
you you dwell on this phrase of E.M. Forster's only connect, which appears in Howard's End. And I wanted you just to expand upon that. Why does that very um, laconic phrase go to the heart of what this very nebulous idea of what humanism is? Well, on one level, I just kind of take it as my motto because I'm trying to find connections between the different meanings of humanism, which is which is not hard. I think those connections are very strong and very much there to be found. In a more general way, it's, it is one of the key ideas of humanists that we should look for connections to other people, connections among communities. Um, there's this great phrase which comes from a play by Terence in the first century, which is, I am human. I consider nothing human alien to me. It's funny because that's actually a joke in the play. I mean, he was a comic playwright and it's spoken by a character who had been accused of being too nosy about what his neighbours were getting up to. And he replies, what can I do? I'm human. I'm interested in all things human. You know, nothing human is alien to me. So it's kind of a wisecrack. But actually, it ended up becoming one of the favourite humanist mottos through history. It's been quoted by humanist or humanist organisations and, and everybody over the years to, to support this idea of to be human is to be connected to other people, connected to what is around us, and that that is the source of our usually of our mean sense of meaning and of our moral sense of connectedness to other people as well. So Only Connect stands for that. In the novel itself, Ian Forster, who was a very, he was a fully paid up member of humanist organisations. He was very much a committed humanist. He has his character, Margaret Schlegel in Howard's End, say to another person, she's sort of saying it in her mind, I think, before she actually tells him, but she's saying, you know, only connect. Think about the connections between your experience and other people's experience, but also between your actions and their consequences, between the things that you do and how other people suffer. And there's also a sense of the connections within yourself as well. So not living as a hypocrite, which is what she feels that this particular character is doing. So connect ideas in your own life as well. And it's a very powerful two words it really sums up something the more you unpack it the more you realize is in there my sense is that our listeners will be listening along and nodding and thinking that this is you know this is all stuff that we can buy into we're humans we like the idea of connections and we're curious these are real central components of your idea but i think with humanism we have to stress the fact that it's not quite as safe as people might expect it to be. I think early on you talk about what humanism is, but also about this shadow story as you describe it, which is a more disturbing one that runs in parallel to the long arc of the humanist story through history. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I kind of call it anti-humanism, which is a just a, a handy way of talking about it because it is a kind of shadow story to humanism. It's the idea where where humanists might say, well, we're essentially more likely to to want to help others, for example, and that this this can be a foundation for morality. The anti-humanist sort of alternative to this would be to say, well, no, actually, look at the things we do to each other all the time. It's it's terrible. Humans are violent. They're cruel. They're have no concern for others at all. So how can you found anything on that? I think it's interesting that in a way, both of those can can illuminate each other to some extent. They, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have this constant dialogue between the two, because I think if humanism is on the verge of getting just a little bit too hopeful, a bit too positive about what humans are capable of, and even a bit naive, then you've got your anti-humanist there ready to say, well, you know, it's a much darker story than that. And let's not forget all the terrible things that, that people have done. This is not a bad thing. It's good to be reminded of that. But I think the humanist side contributes this, above all, this sense of of hope and a kind of the humanist answer to that would always be that, yes, we've done terrible things. But if we want to improve on that, even slightly, we have to work out better systems for managing our politics. We have to use all the ingenuity that is at our disposal and try and maximize those parts of ourselves that are cooperative and that do show goodwill towards others and develop that. So we have these good seeds in a way of, of being able to manage our affairs better. It's really up to us if we want human 
life to be a better thing, then it's really up to us to do something about it, as opposed to perhaps just sort of praying for divine intervention or feeling that we're helpless to improve ourselves and we need you know, something bigger than us to come and save us. There's this long strand in history, I think, of we must just throw ourselves into the hands of fate or providence or God's grace and repent and just, you know, wait for something to be sorted out for us. And I think the humanist strand would always be saying, well, we can't just wait for something to be sorted out for us. We, If anything's going to get better, it needs to be us. So there's this dialogue between the kind of there's a strand in anti-humanism, which I think is is particularly does cause an awful lot of trouble. And I think it's that it's it's the turning to authority or turning to some something like the state or to an organized religion and its power and looking to that for salvation or even to an ideology as with communism saying, well, OK, you know, it's it's we've got to have a dictatorship of the proletariat now, but it'll all be worth it because everything is going to be part of this beautiful new system once the, we've ironed out these little problems that are making people suffer now. There's this tendency to look to something beyond us, which is only only human, if you like. It's, it's natural enough, but once you get the weight of an authority behind it and people saying, no, you just have to believe this because this is how it is written in the scriptures or this is what Marxist theory says or this is what the state decrees and you'd better just knuckle under and obey, then I think you're really getting into a dark place, which, you know, we're, I mean, there's no shortage of that sort of thing in the world today for us to to sort of try and sort out some way of dealing with. But uh, yeah, I do think that's quite a dark force. Is it fair to characterise it in these terms that Whereas when you talk about these great ideologies, whether it be a, a religious one or a political one or what be it, they often start with this idea that there's a problem, either that we're, you know, kind of we're bad because we've, we're a fallen um, species or there's a social problem. But here's the solution. We can exactly. we can be better if we follow this. But with humanism, it's slightly different, whereas we look to the individual first and say, actually, we have all of these potentials. Um, and if we um, exploit these human potentials, we can make things better. So it's the first step is a is a different one. It is. Oh, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. I think as well that there's a couple of aspects to that. One is there's this all or nothing idea that everything's terribly wrong with us now and we need some drastic radical solution. Um, whereas a humanist would be more inclined to say, well, we need to look at what's working well in this situation and what's not and try and just slightly improve at least all the time, try and tone down the things that are bad and do more of the things that are good. It's There's this idea, meliorism, which was a phrase that was used by the novelist George Eliot in the 19th century a lot. Um, she thought she was the first to use it, actually, and apparently she wasn't quite, but it, was, but it, it captures a kind of enlightenment idea, which is that we can make things a bit better it's you know we can use our ingenuity our technology our ability to manage ourselves socially and politically not to have a complete transformation but to just have a bit of progress have a bit of improvement so that yeah the humanist is more approach would be more on that side and rather than we need a revolutionary radical overhaul of society which is often brings all sorts of dangers but you're right about this thing of the, the structure being that everything's wrong and here's how to make it right. There was this great analysis of how religion works by William James, who wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, all about this sort of psychology of religion. And, and he identified one of the, well, really the key structure of a lot of religious doctrine as being there's something wrong with humanity or with you, with me, as things now are. And here's the solution. And here's the solution on a plate. You know, this is what needs doing. And hu humanists would, would kind of probably disagree with the idea that there's an easy solution, but also would disagree with the idea that there's necessarily a radical problem. There was uh, a Chinese philosopher who we know in the West as Mencius or Mengzi, who was working in the Confucian tradition. He had this sort of analysis of, you know, are we good? He did it really in terms of not whether we're totally good or totally bad, but do we have the seeds of goodness 
he reckoned that we do. His example was that if you're walking along and you see a small child falling into a lake or a pond, what do you do? What do you feel? And what you feel, certainly, whatever you, and presumably you act on it, but you certainly feel this sudden impulse to to run forward and save the child, even before you've thought about it. Um, and he says that impulse is the seeds of goodness in us. It needs developing. In order to become a real morality, you need to take that seed and develop it. Um, you can't call that a morality in itself, but it is the foundation of a morality. And it's kind of, it's very strong in us. It's probably, I mean, I'm stepping outside what he said now, but it's probably because we are such social creatures. We grow up already deeply entwined into other people's lives. So it's not surprising really that we have this very strong connection to others, which see that's that idea of connection again. A humanist would say, let's work on those seeds, let's cultivate those seeds and not expect miracles, but just try and cultivate them a bit more. I quite like the agricultural aspect <laughs> of that, of growing growing seeds. And something I've noticed reading through your book is that there is something of a stubborn streak in humanists over the centuries. They will not um, easily conform to established authorities. Do you think that's a fair point? Yeah. I was full of glee when uh, we talked about what we might, you know, kind of choose for our choices today. And you you decided um, not to conform perfectly <laughs> as well to one calendar year, which I thought was so um, quintessentially humanist. Such a rebel and I'd, maverick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd allow it to pass. Um, I did have a pin you down to three consecutive years. So we're going to go back and have a look at those. Um, something of a triumph for me. But do you want to tell <laughs> us where we'd begin? If you could travel back through time, which year shall we begin our travels in? Well, the year I chose was 1348. I must say that kind of after having settled on that, I looked again at, at what you'd asked me to do. And it was, which year would I want to go back to? And I realised with horror that 1348 is the last place I'd want to be. It's not somewhere you'd really want to suddenly find yourself as you stepped out of the time machine, because this was the year in Europe where the bubonic plague had arrived um, the year before, uh, but it had really begun spreading in a in an absolutely terrifying way around um, much of Europe, but beginning in the Italian peninsula and southern France. So the place I chose was uh, actually Parma. The reason for that was because even though all this terrible stuff was going on and that wasn't the only thing, there were also um, wars, wars between different cities in, in the Italian peninsula, wars between factions within those cities. You know, it was really a pretty bad place. And yet in the middle of that, there was this great flowering of literature. And in fact, a great sense of hope buried within that. So that's why I thought I'd choose that. Well, there's no going back now. We're we're <laughs> we're off to the 14th century. I'm I'm going to quote back to you um, a bridging paragraph of your own, which um, which sets it up quite nicely, I think. And you say, "And now, in case we think we have it bad, let us turn to the Southern Europe of the 1300s amid scenes of disorder, disease, suffering, and loss. A few enthusiasts took up." the fragments of a more distant past and use them to plan a fresh start. In doing so, they made something fresh out of themselves too, and they became the first of the great literary humanists. Um, a nice paragraph, which I thought bore quoting. Um, just a few things to, to set the scene a little bit more. Um, we're we're going to be looking at the Italian peninsula and a couple of really, really important characters who you've identified as being at the start of this humanist tradition. Um, but just to talk broadly before we um, talk more specifically, um, this is an Italy which is quite dominated by Christianity and the church at this point. We're a generation mm -hmm. after Dante, so there are interesting things going on in culture. But then as now, it's also full of factionalism. Um, is that right? Yes, it is. And, you know, there was no such thing as Italy in the modern sense. There was no state of Italy and there wouldn't be for many centuries. So it was city-states really that were um, in between the city-states was a very dangerous place to be because there was often so much fighting going on. There were also brigands and you know dangers on the road. 
um, the cities would lock themselves up at night in order to keep everybody safe. So if you weren't back by a certain hour, then that was just sort of bad luck. Um, you might struggle to get in. You'd find the city gates locked. Um, but even within the cities, there were also factions fighting each other. So, you know, there would be changes of ascendancy between different um, groups. The one that's quite well known because Dante became caught up in it is the factional fighting between two groups known as the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. And that meant that Dante had to go into exile from Florence. He within the the, the Guelphs actually kind of won at, at one point, but then having taken over Florence, I'm talking about here, they then split into two groups called the White Guelphs and the Black Guelphs, and they started fighting each other. So that you know, so even, <laughs> that wasn't the end of the story. And it was actually because of that 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 Dante had to flee. And along with him went a lot of other sort of supporters of the White Guelphs. One of them, Francesco Petrarch, or Petrarca, we call him Petrarch in, in English. His father was a friend of, or got to know Dante because they were both on the wrong side of that infighting. And they, they had to go into exile from Florence. They just became refugees and um, never went back. So Petrarch himself was actually born when he was born as a baby. They were on the road. They were in Arezzo in the same sort of area, but they were in a state of exile. So he was very aware, I think, of being born into a state of exile in this very difficult yeah. time. His life is so disrupted by events, isn't it? We're going to look at mm. the plague later on, but this is before that even because of politics. So he lives a peripheral existence and ends up in Avignon. Is that right? Yes, they ended up there. They almost got shipwrecked on the way because the the, the way to cross to you know, what's now like southern France is by, via a very dangerous ship crossing. They're still very dangerous waters, actually, in that area. They did arrive there. And then Petrarch's father had a post, sort of notary post, um, connected with the papal court at Avignon because the the papacy was temporarily located there, having fled Rome because of the same sort of absolute turmoil that was going on in politics. So it was a, you know, the papal court was kind of in exile for a very long period of time. So they settled there or lived just outside the city of Avignon, and uh, Petrarch grew up there. It had been a sort of fairly small, quiet town, but once the papacy arrived there, of course, it came with a mass of hangers-on, this huge court, and a um, certain amount of corruption and chaos. And um, it was, it had sort of bad air. It was considered as being a place where it just was a bit smelly and, and also a bit corrupt and a bit, like, not not really a particularly nice place to be, unless you were enjoying the luxury of the papal court so um just a little bit more on Petrarch because i think this helps us understand him because these events obviously work their way into his character he's a little bit of a literary magpie isn't he? he's very interested in different things and he moves around quite a lot he seems mm. to be not just physically but just intellectually he's um quite nimble is that right because he doesn't yeah. seem to follow his father's path to become a lawyer was it, it was. i think he was he, um, intended and yeah. he he just starts reading and yes his father was just without i guess without sort of questioning the idea that he would be likely to follow roughly in the same career path so he went off to study law which was you know quite a common thing for the educated classes you know to send young men off to study study law, but he really didn't like it at all. And he was passionate from his early youth about collecting manuscripts, finding manuscripts or making copies of them, reading, trying to, you know, sort of immerse himself in these were the manuscripts from the classical world. So they they weren't really religious texts. They were things like Cicero from the Rome of the Re Republic, who, you know, he loved, and Virgil was the other a great poet that uh, that Petrarch loved. He collected those. I mean, that was his kind of teenage rebellion, you know, instead of going out and, I don't know, sort of getting drunk and staying out all night, his idea of teenage rebellion was to try and find copies of Cicero manuscripts. And as soon as he could, he abandoned his legal studies and um, devoted himself to, to a life of literature, which was, you know, there was, there had been the possibility of, of that through recent times, medieval times, working within the church. But he managed to sort of have a little bit more independence. So he did work within 
a church context. He had a church position himself, um, but he also worked for private patrons. So we're talking about members of the nobility, powerful families. Um, he managed to do that for his whole life. And that did involve him in a lot of traveling around because he would go to where they were and uh, spend time in their courts. As he went on, he acquired more and more beautiful places to live in various parts of Italy and also in the region of Avignon, where for a long time he had this wonderful place in in the mountains by a spring in Vaucluse, where he could more or less sort of step out of his front door and and go for a walk with his dog up this beautiful river and um, admire the wildflowers and uh, just sort of have a wonderful time. There was another place near Milan where he did experiments on uh, planting different kinds of laurel bushes and and uh, seeing which ones came out best. So he had this wonderful rustic life. But he also had to, of course, to keep pleasing these patrons and keep producing what they wanted, which was basically lots of writing and lots of uh, everything from poetry to triumphal, you know, epic poetry and and letters of praise or letters of consolation, treatises on human life and and on you know dip, diplomatic type writings as well so sort of freelance writer really but a mixture of being a, obligated to these people and also having a quite a lot of freedom it's, it's quite an interesting mixture that that he had yeah yeah it's um in some ways it feels like the horatian ideal of good country living to be like out in the countryside plus this new element of all um, the manuscripts as well. Mm. And I suppose one of the slight paradoxes that I think is right is that even though the manuscripts he's most interested in were not religious, they were often kept in monasteries or religious houses, weren't they? But we should yeah. probably, like, if we get mm. into that, we'll be off on a massive <laughs> tangent all day because it's far too interesting. Yeah. But um, listen, I think you've given us a lovely portrait of um, the young Petrarch, but let's go find him in this year... 1348 because he's he's back in Italy isn't he and yeah. um, we're going to look over three scenes mm. through this story so the first do you want to tell us where we're going and um when about in that year he's living mainly in Parma he's doing you know one of his located with one of his patrons courts there so Parma is just if we were to do a geography for people who aren't familiar with it it's between Genoa and Venice, but in the middle. That's isn't right. It? Yeah, so if you drew a line yeah. Those northern, places. northern Italy. What I think was it had a huge impact on him, apart from the, just the general horror of the plague time, was that um, he lost some people very, very important to him. He lost a very close friend, and he heard only later that uh, one of the people who had died, and this is back in Avignon, was this woman who he always calls uh, Laura who was his uh, muse, really. I mean, he says that he glimpsed her in a church one day when he was still living back in Avignon and was immediately, oh, you know, love, absolute love at first sight. I mean, I, they never really had a, a relationship. We don't really know who she was. We don't really know very much about her at all. Various speculations have been made about her identity, but we kind of know nothing about it except what he the, he wrote in one of his in one of his manuscripts, he sort of wrote a note recording the day when he first saw her. And he wrote loads of poetry to her. So the, the sonnet, he developed his own form of the sonnet, which we still call the Petrarchan sonnet. Uh, sonnets of love, sonnets of walking by these beautiful streams, you know, sometimes, but love. It's interesting that her name is is Laura because he gives a that name, or maybe it was her real name, but of course it just happens to be the same as the laurel um, wreath, which was awarded to poets in the classical world, um, which Petrarch himself was also awarded. The poet laureate, I mean, this is exactly what we still have today. She herself is is the poetry that you get laurels for. It's that E.M. Forster only connection mm. word, which is um, echoing around my head at the moment, because I think this is something which is just um, worth talking about for a moment, this idea of the ancients and the moderns, um, which gains more energy over the centuries that follows. But at this point, just to understand Petrarch's worldview, is does he have this sense that there was something amazing which happened 
1500, 2000 years ago, and they're living in an inferior cultural reality and they're trying to claw their way back. Do you think that's already there with Petrarch at this point? And when he's using words yeah. like Laura, mm. it's him also trying to, you know, find some connection. Yes, definitely finding a connection you. to the classical world and not even that far back, but really the the, the Roman world um, of 13, 1400 years before himself. So his vision, he really created the idea of the Dark Ages. So he, his vision of, of history was that there was this great time when the human studies, literature, culture was all flourishing. Beautiful things were being written. There was great oratory. It, it was a very civilized society. And that had all come to an end with the with the, a fall into darkness, which had happened with the fall of Rome, then there was just, it was just, it was as if everything fell into a black hole. You know, it was just darkness from then on until very recent times himself, really. I think he thought he had quite a lot to to contribute to this. There was now a chance for a, a reflowering, a re, literally a renaissance. That term was used a little bit later of what he was talking about, but he kind of invented rebirth renaissance of those great classical creations and abilities and also the, the kind of moral authority that he thought the classical writers had which had since been lost the way to recover this was to find the original writings as much as possible to find as many lost works by cicero and virgil and all the rest of them as possible study them imitate them and develop a new beginning in literature on the basis of immersing yourself in those great writings of the past so there was definitely a sense of like there was light then there was a fall into darkness and now even in the middle of these terrible times there was the possibility of returning to the light again so it's a very powerful narrative of of what he thought was happening and and really it kind of influenced how the dark ages was seen for a very long time afterwards and monasteries deserve a lot of credit for having preserved a lot of the writings of the classical world not only in their, I mean, very rarely in their actual original form, but by copying and transmitting them. So they did do that, but it was definitely of secondary interest to them compared to scriptural writings, sacred works. Mm -hmm. But actually, because they had these great libraries, there was a lot of stuff in them to be discovered. And this is what Petrarch and his friends applied themselves to doing. And all the traveling helped because wherever they went, they could, you know, delve into what might be lurking in the in the libraries of, of any monastery that was nearby and made some great this discoveries. Is, yeah. This is what's going on in Petrarch's head at the time. But of course, when we get to 1348 and there's this quite dreadful um, event with the plague, I think I don't know the percentage of people that died, but it's it's a lot of people would were, were dying and there was no sense of any medicine that would help or any cure mm -hmm. or whatever. It, it is something that, in a way, is understandable for us today because of what we went through in 2020 with coronavirus and how some people, wherever they were in their life, were, were either stimulated or depressed by it. I don't know uh, which way, but it seems, um, you know, some people had lockdown projects and so on. But it was as a response to global events. Here, Petrarch responds to the plague in which is, I suppose, quite a personal and emotional way. Is that correct? Yeah, it's clearly a tremendous shock. I mean, he starts, he carries on writing poetry, but it becomes darker, gloomier, more despairing at times. And of course, Laura, as I say, you know, he, she, according to, he, he made another note in the same manuscript where he'd noted the date when they first met. According to him, she died on the same date, but in 1348 of the plague. And he wrote to, you know, friends about, about that and about the people that he'd lost. And there was a great sense of of loss, tremendous sense of loss, as well as the uncertainty, the the turning upside down of a world. I mean, I think this is something that that we can relate to a little bit um, through our recent experiences. But he also used his writing to find a kind of consolation. I mean, he tended to turn to writing. It's often he comments on how he couldn't stand to live without writing. I mean, he was lost. If he wasn't writing something, he would suffer. So clearly writing was a kind of uh, consolation for him. But he also used the content of his writing to provide consolation for himself and for others by his usual 
way of reaching back into the literature of the classical world. So he would go back and find letters of consolation written by the authors of ancient Rome who were always writing to each other to 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 offer slightly comforting thoughts of one sort or another. So he he definitely looked for that. And there was there was consolation to be found just in the fact of other people having lived through distressing experiences before. So there was a sense of deepening the connection between himself and these great writers of the past because they had suffered too. And, you know, they'd found ways of trying to um, feel better about him. And he tried to do the same. Hello there, it's Peter here. And it's time for a word about our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours. ACE are a much-loved and long-established business that are based in the award-winning Stapleford Granary Building just south of the University City of Cambridge. I recently spent a day up there with them, seeing what they do and how they build their award-winning tours. Now, these tours are split into categories like archaeology, art and architecture, houses and gardens, music, nature, and there are more than a hundred of them setting off over the year ahead. Let me give you a flavour of just a few. In May, for instance, there's the Jewels of the Loire, medieval and Renaissance chateaus, an eight-day adventure into some stirring French architecture. Or in June, you can join a trip to the spectacular Bach Festival in Leipzig, led by the expert tour director, Richard Wigmore. Or if you fancy heading in the opposite direction, then in mid-July, there's a five-day archaeology tour to one of the most majestic Roman monuments in the whole British Isles. That's Hadrian's Wall. To find out more about any of these and many, many more besides, I really do suggest that you explore their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. It's the perfect place for the culturally curious. Brilliant. Let's move on. So much that I could ask you about Petrarch, but I'm resisting all temptations. We've got a few more to go through. This is what's happening in 1348. And I know that you want to take us through three consecutive years. So should we move forward to 1349 to the next stage of this story? Yes. And it's very much connected because in 1349, I mean, that first wave of the plague has has kind of receded, um, but it wouldn't be away for long. There was going to be you know, many more outbreaks to come, in fact. And he lost even more people in the outbreak of 1353, people very close to him. But anyway, 1349, he starts a project that he'd had in mind uh, for a while, I think, but he decided to start collecting back copies of all the letters that he'd sent to friends all over Italy and southern France for many years, his own letters, and to compile them into a book that a manuscript book, of course, but one that could then be circulated among his friends and which would contain a lot of this consolation, a lot of this um, improving thoughts. But also, of course, it contained a lot of other stuff as well. So it contained personal accounts of his experiences, advice to others on what they were going through, um, a lot of talk about books and manuscripts. And often he's urging other people to send him copies of any manuscripts they can find, you know, and say, ah, you're going to such and such. Go to the monastery and let them roll out their chests full of papers to see if they've got any good books there. And so you get a real sense. This, these letters are wonderful. He he started assembling them in 1349. He went on doing so for several years and then he would he collect them at, as he issued issued them. I mean, sort of started distributing them as a manuscript copy in about 1353. And um, then he followed them up later with with a later set of letters that he'd written later in life. And so they form an enormous resource of really good reading, really interesting accounts of things, little glimpses into his life, glimpses into his enormous circle of friendship. He knew tons of people and, uh, you know, wrote to them um, for all sorts of reasons. So you get this whole world that you discover through reading these letters. He also wrote letters directly to his admired writers of the past. So there are letters to Cicero and Virgil and the others, which um, he would always sign them off from the land of the living, you know, and 
as if they were in the land of the dead and he was and that was their address and he was in the land of the living so he wrote uh, one letter addressed to posterity so that's us saying and he started sort of something like well you may have heard of me uh, but you know maybe not and <laughs> so it's kind of he had a very broad sense of what a what a letter was but yeah so he started that work and i do see that as probably having a lot to do with the experience of the trauma of the plague the sense of of loss and the need to preserve these letters, to preserve those friendships, to try and gather everything together. But while on the subject of 1349, it seems a good moment to introduce another character of the same period, slightly younger than Petrarch, about nine years younger, who was also beginning in 1349 to put together a compilation. But it was a compilation of stories. And that was Giovanni Boccaccio, who, again, a huge variety of things, very much like Petrarch in being having this great intellectual curiosity and this great desire to accumulate a fine collection of manuscripts, again, delving through the monasteries and things like that, and a very productive writer. And uh, this particular work, The Decameron, is still his best known work today. And it, it's 10 stories told over a period of 10 days by 10 people. Um, they're all sort of young, fairly young well-heeled kind of people, but they were all in refuge, fleeing from the plague in Florence. They'd gone out into the countryside, had been able to find really very comfortable accommodation in each of their villas, where they were lucky enough to have teams of servants bringing them a constant stream of food and, uh, you know, entertaining them. And then after each of these magnificent lunches, they would take it in turns to they would all tell a story, so you'd get 10 stories on each day. This is fantasy land. I mean, it really wasn't like that during the plague, because actually the countryside, if anything, was an even more dreadful place than the cities were, because they'd often just been abandoned. I mean, the uh, rural communities had, had also tended to flee, so nobody was collecting in the crops. They'd left domestic animals, dogs and things, just sort of to roam the countryside. And Boccaccio actually does preface this uh, Decameron with quite a short account, but an incredibly moving one of, of what it had actually been like. So he talks about how the city, you know, people were just eventually gave up on even burying the dead and just all the social, the usual social niceties were, were completely abandoned and anybody who could flee did. So you had these people going into the countryside, but it's him who describes this scene of desolation in the countryside as well. And he sets the scene with that. So this is why these 10 people left. But he and he also apologizes to readers for reminding them of something that for the readers as well would be such a recent history that they really wouldn't want to be reminded of. But he says, sorry, you know, sorry to take you back to that terrible time. But here's the setting for my thoroughly entertaining 100 stories. You've got two comp two very significant compilations, humanist compilations of one of stories, one of letters, both beginning to be put together in the same same year, 1349. It's fascinating, isn't it? And they're both um, innovations in form. One thing that was also striking me when I was listening to you talk about Petrarch's letters is that they were probably, and you'll have a view on this, I'm sure, but um, a product also of his peripheral life thus far, because he'd made all these connections in different places. So the mm. idea of drawing everything in some coherent whole must have been really, um, I suppose, attractive for him. Whereas with Boccaccio, we have something of the opposite, which is the idea of escape and getting out and getting away um, with his story collection. Can you tell us a little bit about the stories, um, if that's all right? Are they funny? Are they silly? Are they profound? Are they grave? Is there a, a complete mix of everything in there? There's that? a complete mix of everything. And we tend to think of them as mainly being bawdy stories, but only some of them are. Some of them are really very serious and, and some of them have very uh, rather solemn, morally improving messages. Um, so one of the tales is... It became known as Patient Griselda because it's the story of this woman who suffers one thing after another from her terrible husband. And she she puts up with it and she's rewarded in the end by, you know, the fact that he loves her after all. And I mean, you just read that and you think, oh, dear, oh dear, you know, <laughs> not sure about this one. But others are just an absolute riot of, of fun. And, and quite a lot of it is 
kind of anti-clerical joking around. So really taking a little bit, taking the mickey out of clerics, out of priests, out of nuns, out of mon- monastic Is this the one where the nun is uh, woken up in yeah. the middle of the night? And There's, yes, there's one, one of my favourite stories. You can tell that oh, story. Yeah, yeah, I mean, one of my favourite stories is the abbess, I suppose, of a, of a monastery who is gets up in the middle of the night because she... I think somebody's warned her that one of the nuns is in bed with with uh, a pre, you know, one of the, the young priest or something. She goes to investigate, but she doesn't realise that she's put on her head instead of her cap, because of course they always had like nightcaps on. Instead of her cap, she's put on the breeches of the priest that she herself is in bed with. <laughs> and there's actually a nice little illustration of that in one of the early editions, printed editions of the book, um, which I, I use. It feels a little bit um, Monty Python. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, um, this is the nature of, you know, these are entertaining stories. So there's this escapism. But what he's also doing is showing the range of his abilities. It's almost like a sample book. Look at all these different kinds of things that I can write. You get the same thing in Chaucer, actually, in the Canterbury Tales. And he was very, he had read Boccaccio and he was very picked up on some of the stories. And he was in a way doing something similar because with Chaucer, we remember the more bawdy things because they're the, obviously the most appealing ones. They're the most fun ones to read. But some of the stories are you know, very serious and they're told in different styles. So again, it's like showing, showing what they can do. And that I like that really as well, because that is so much in the spirit of the time of really taking pride in their literary achievements as this very much so with Petrarch. It's it's like, look at what I, can, what I can do. You know, look what I can do with language. Look what I can do with study. And it's a great. And at, at a time of such, mm. at a time of such loss, to have something you're creating must have um, had a, you know, a really energizing effect on them. Brilliant. Well, listen, we've got one more to go through. We've done um, two plague years, and we're getting to thirteen fifty, where we have the culmination of your little story or your little time travel. But where are we going to go to next? Well, 1350, we're back in, we're in Florence. This is a moment when Petrarch, for the first time, is passing through Florence. He's visiting the city. Of course, it's his city of origin. Florence, very keen to claim him as his own and uh, as their own, but is passing through on his way to Rome, actually, to attend the Papal Jubilee. But the person who welcomes him into the city, puts him up in his own home, makes him feel that he's very welcome there, is none other than Giovanni Boccaccio. And that's the first time that we met. So, okay. yeah. So just, just at this point, because it seems to me a, a really nice vignette, this, an opportunity for me to ask you a little bit about visual history. So what they looked like, because we've heard about their, their works and their look. Do we, uh, do we have any surviving likenesses of them that we can use to try and make sense of what Boccaccio and Petrarch were like as, as characters? We have we have a rough idea. We have sort of a little sketch of of Petrarch, which is you know contemporary, and um, we have descriptions. So we know that Petrarch. I mean, he looks he almost looks quite round faced in in some of the images, um, but he was described as being tall and of a, a quite an imposing appearance with a kind of majesty about him. Whereas Boccaccio was was very different because he was uh, definitely on the rotund side. He was as he got older, he began to suffer from some health problems through being uh, well. We don't really know the details of how how severe it was, but he must have, I think, had a little bit of obesity going on towards the end of his life. So yes, they were very much. Uh, you can sort of get some mental picture of what they would have looked like from that. And how about their characters? Was uh, would it be right to say that Petrarch um, had a he might have had some majesty about him, but did he have a self-confidence that drove him through life? He had think? an amazing mixture because he did have quite a bit of apparent confidence in his dealings with others. I mean, he could be sort of verging on the pompous. You get the feeling reading some of his letters, actually, because sometimes he kind of struck a, a pompous tone. He always claimed that he didn't care about being famous, but it comes through pretty loud and clear in the letters that he did care about it a lot. He liked being famous, although he'd then complain of sort of being bugged a bit too much by his fans. He was also full of self-doubts. I mean, I think his early experiences had left him a bit scarred, I think, with that great uncertainty that he grew up with. 
and the, the knowledge of being in exile and and also the fact that he always had to depend on these patrons all the time and and get the approval and and often didn't really feel entirely free. Boccaccio, on the other hand, is also a funny mixture because he he's had a big circle of friends. He seems to have been very much respected and liked. He seems to have been fairly successful and he had a quite an academic career going on. He became an expert in Dante's writings. Um, gave public lectures on Dante, also had this, of course, this successful career writing stories and also poetry. And he collected um, accounts of of ancient mythology and did a huge range of stuff. He always seemed to feel for some reason at a bit of a disadvantage in relation to other people. So, you know, it's an odd mixture. He kind of had a chip on his shoulder and felt that I could have been a contender if only I'd had more encouragement early on. But he was a contender. I mean, it's hard to see what he's complaining about. And also, he was actually very generous in his praise of other writers. He was very generous in his praise of Petrarch as well as of Dante. So, yeah, interesting mixtures, both of them, I think. So when we get to this moment in Florence in 1350, when they both meet, how does it go? I think, so Petrarch's nine years older than Boccaccio, I think. Mm. So he is senior in age as well as status, I suppose. Yes, definitely. Yes, I, it, it seems that they I mean, do. We don't know a lot of detail about what they actually said to each other when they met. But I think that um, Boccaccio was rather in awe of Petrarch. He was quite starstruck by meeting him because he had admired his work for a long time and thought very highly of him. So I'm sure that he would have showered Petrarch with praise. And I'm sure that Petrarch wouldn't really have minded that. You can imagine it probably went quite well at the beginning. But Boccaccio did have something in mind he wanted to try and persuade Petrarch to move to Florence come back to his town of origin and perhaps take up a university post and and Boccaccio who was very much involved with the life of the town and of the university and he knew a lot of people and you know had all sorts of official posts actually he had pulled some strings to try and make this happen but um, it didn't happen Petrarch decided not to do it he went elsewhere and Boccaccio was a bit disappointed about that initially. So you almost feel well, perhaps the friendship could have ended there because it didn't, wasn't really a very auspicious beginning to it. But it didn't. They went on writing to each other. Boccaccio went and visited Petrarch several times. They saw each other again quite regularly and they maintained this correspondence. So they, there's a definite tone of fondness that starts to enter into Petrarch's letters to Boccaccio. You get the feeling that he regarded Boccaccio as being a kind of son, even though it wasn't that great an age difference, really. He very much spoke to Boccaccio as if he was a, a young son in need of mentoring. He had a warmer relationship with him than he did with his actual son, because Petrarch had a, a real son, but he was he found that son a bit of a disappointment to him. I think the son suffered from depression, actually, and uh, kind of mooched around the house and Petrarch just got fed up with him, kicked him out in the end, which wasn't wasn't very nice. But to Boccaccio, he was much more, this was the kind of son he wanted, you know, somebody who was just as excited about manuscript collecting and reading and writing as he was. So you really get this kind of filial relationship coming across quite strongly and a lot of affection, but often kind of teasing each other or, or not teasing, but, you know, kind of slightly scolding each other. This, you get that note in the in the letters. So you really get, a, I think, a fascinating glimpse into their relationship through the letters that survive. And in that moment in 1350, when they first meet, it would be fascinating to witness because I suppose you'd be getting an early sense or an early look at this idea of the quest that would become so powerful um, a motivation for uh, the, the humanist work that goes forward over the, the decades and centuries that follow, this idea of exploring knowledge. And even if we take this forward a little bit into the future, by the 15th century, we have lots of manuscript finds, don't we? Yes. If, if we imagine a mm. jigsaw puzzle, more pieces are appearing. Yeah. I mean, what Petrarch and Boccaccio started in the field of this manuscript hunting just took off completely. I mean, there was so many young humanist intellectuals and not just young ones roaming Europe really looking for trying to find ever more obscure finds and it came along with another you know with other great revivals of interest in the past during the 15th century so also people beginning to take a real interest in the Roman ruins which had 
been just lying there a bit neglected and, and still were. They were all overgrown. I mean, you couldn't see much. It wasn't like today. But starting to think, OK, so when do these go back to? Who built these? Starting to do real historical inquiry and archaeological inquiry. That that was the time when that really got underway and became ever more sophisticated. So far outdid what Petrarch and Boccaccio were able to do in coming to an understanding of the past and the traces that it left on the present and looking for ways to use that to feed new creations and to feed new works of literature and art. Did they have any particular successes? What would they be most proud of in terms of their finds, do you think, either of the two, Boccaccio or Petrarch? One of the things that that I like among uh, Petrarch's finds was when he was still very young, he was traveling in sort of around well, France, low countries in Liège, he found a manuscript of a short oration by Cicero, which was um, um, addressed to Archias, somebody called Archias, who in fact was not a Roman citizen and was threatened with being deported from Rome. I mean, it was a kind of immigration um, case that, that Cicero took up on his behalf and delivered this oration to the Senate. And in it, he argues for because Archias was was a, a writer and a teacher. And he says, even if he's not technically a citizen, even if there's some technicality, we should give him citizenship because he has brought so much pleasure as well as interest into the lives of Romans through his literary work, his poetry and, and teaching, that he deserves to be a citizen. And it's in that text that Cicero speaks about what he calls the human and literary studies and the pleasure to be had from those. So the inspiration for everything that Petrarch did really is encapsulated in that those lines of Cicero. Allow me to make one last connection because this tallies so nicely with an anecdote that you put in the beginning about a refugee using the, the fact or the claim that he was a humanist to justify his claim mm. for 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 citizenship as a British citizen. Do you want to tell that story very briefly? Sure. Yes. Yes. He's now very, uh, you know, active in in Humanists UK. So his name is Hamza bin Walayat, and he applied for permission to remain in the UK on the basis that he's from Pakistan. If he went back to Pakistan, he faced violence, possibly death, because he was an overt humanist. He because of his humanist beliefs, which in Pakistan is considered blasphemy. It is punishable by death, but. It's also, of course, in many cases, people just get killed by or attacked, you know, and sometimes killed by fellow students happen to one person or by the, their families. So he was in fear for his life. And he put in this application on the basis of his humanist beliefs. And somebody at the home office didn't have any clue what humanism was and tried to check this claim by asking him to name humanists from the past. And particularly they were looking for the names of Plato and Aristotle which was strange because really they were not particularly humanist. I mean, Plato was anything but a humanist in all kinds of ways, which I could go on about that for hours. But, you know, sort of the general principle was basically the Home Office quite clueless about what a humanist was. So it was denied, but uh, Hamza bin Waliat went to appeal and uh, won the case. And with a lot of support going into his case from Humanists UK, not only did they win the case, but from then on, an introduction to humanism has been a part of the training process for, for home office staff who are involved in interviewing applicants. So it was it was quite a victory. And he's still, yeah, he, you know, very much an activist within uh, Humanists UK today. So the motto of that story, or, you know, my reason for exploring his story in the book was the idea of people not knowing what humanism is or having very wrong ideas about what humanists are. And it's understandable because humanism is this immensely broad potential um, idea, topic, tradition, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, it does have certain strands in common. It does have a meaning. And that's very much what I wanted to write about in the book. And hopefully we've managed to draw quite a few of them out today i've learned a lot it's tremendously interesting the book as ever is well it's hugely enlightening it's great fun and i think you've done what what humanism 
needs are we giving it what it needs in a way because it's this framework this sense of um a center because it's all too easy to say it's this and that and to bring it all together is is quite some achievement so great congratulations from me i've got one last question i'm going to ask of you before um we return to 2023 at least it's this one if you could have a tangible object from 1348 or i'll throw in the other two years as well (laughs) or thereabouts as a memento of, of this early moment in the humanist story is there anything particular that you would like well i was thinking about this and i think what i would rather like to have is a cutting or a a plant from one of Petrarch's experiments with his laurel bushes, because it would be quite nice to bring that back and uh, plant it in the garden and always think of it as being Petrarch's laurel bush. So that would be nice. And hope the dog doesn't go charging into us one afternoon. Which it probably would, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, that's a great choice. And carries forward this metaphor a slightly agricultural one that we yes, touched on definitely. earlier of growing and furthering it's all about and, the agriculture um, <laughs> and hope perhaps sarah bakewell it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much thank you very much indeed that was lovely thanks that was me peter moore talking to sarah bakewell about her new book humanly possible 700 years of humanist free thinking inquiry and hope will soon be published by chateau and windus It's very timely, beautifully constructed, and it'll surely be one of the books of the year. Thanks to you for listening today. We'll be back with something a little bit different later on in the week. Look out for that. Goodbye.